In the last 10 years, the Barna Group has done quite a bit of research into the faith of people who grew up in church. You might be surprised to know that on average, more than half of those who grow up in an evangelical church stop attending church by age 18. Of the 22% no longer consider themselves to be Christians at all, 30% identify as Christians but don't attend a church at all. So only 48% of those who grow up in church are staying in church when they reach adulthood. However, this 48% divides further into two groups, a 38% and a 10%. And Barnett describes the 38% of the total as habitual churchgoers. They attend church, but they don't hold to foundational core beliefs or behaviors associated with a disciple of Jesus Christ. For example, they tend to report that their relationship with Jesus does not deeply impact the way they live their lives every day. Only 10% of those who grow up in a church end up becoming what the Barna Group calls resilient disciples. These are, quote, followers of Jesus who are resiliently faithful in the face of cultural coercion and who live a vibrant life in the spirit, end quote. These are people who attend church at least monthly and they engage with their church community. They trust firmly in the authority of the Bible. They are committed to Jesus personally, affirming his crucifixion and his resurrection to conquer sin and death. And they desire to transform broader society as an outcome of their faith. 10% of those who grew up in churches fit in that category by age 18. Now, David Kinneman, the president of the Barna Group, he summarizes their findings regarding this generation of young people in this way. Young non-Christians are avoiding Christianity and young Christians are abandoning church. Now, Kinneman's proposed solution to this state of affairs is for the church to get its act together in producing what he calls resilient disciples. And it's a brilliant solution. It's brilliant because it wasn't David Kinneman's idea to begin with. In this morning's passage from Luke's gospel, as we continue our study of Luke, Luke will get more direct and explicit than he has yet been in his narrative about Jesus. And Luke will show us that resilient disciples are not just a good idea, they are the definition of those who know Jesus. So what Barna calls those habitual churchgoers, according to Jesus, they're not even Christians. There is no way you can follow Jesus and not end up as a resilient disciple. Anything else will result in the final and utter loss of your life. So this morning, we'll see, as you can see in your outline, that you can save your life by dealing head-on with three basic questions. Who is Jesus? What direction is he heading? And how can I follow 
Answer these questions right, and you will save your life. But answer them wrong, and you will lose everything you've worked so hard for. Let me pray, and then we'll dive into the passage. Father in heaven, please help us, give us ears to hear, that we might see your in your word, the Lord Jesus, and that we might find the right answers to these questions and so save our lives. Please rescue us and open our ears and our hearts by your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first question facing us this morning is, who is Jesus? This morning's passage is not the first time in Luke that Luke brings this question up, but it is the most pointed in the gospel. Let me read verses 18 through 20 of Luke chapter 9. Now it happened that as he, Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. Now where we are here in Luke, word about Jesus has gotten out across the countryside, and people just don't know what to do with him. Because he preaches with authority just like John the Baptist. And he heals the sick and raises the dead like the great prophet Elijah. And he stands up to the authorities in the name of Yahweh just like one of the prophets of old. Except he's way better at what he does than any of those old guys were. So what do we make of this? That's what people are saying about him. And Jesus draws out his disciples further. He wants to know what they make of this. In verse 20, he turns to them. But who do you say that I am? This is the first critical question. Who am I? Peter steps up and answers on behalf of the others to say, the Christ of God. Now, you should know that this funny word Christ so often is a, a swear word today but in uh, in Greek which the New Testament was written in the word the Greek word Christ is a translation of the Hebrew word Messiah Peter is saying you are God's Messiah but what does that mean Messiah if we take that and put it in plain language today I think it would mean something like the chosen one. Something that we, we have in our stories, in our mythology, in our hopes and dreams. Who is the chosen one who will bring to pass all that we're waiting for? Peter is saying, you are God's chosen one. You are the hope of Israel. You are everything we've been waiting for. The scriptures have told us to watch for you to show up. And we believe that you, Jesus, are that one. You are the one who will make everything right. You are the one who will restore Israel to her former glory. And you will launch God's new kingdom on earth. So friends, I ask you today, 
Who would you say that Jesus is? If, if you would say that he is a good teacher, one among many, you have a lot to explain. Because what sort of great teacher would allow his followers to associate him as closely as they have in this book with God himself and so pin all their hopes on him? If you think he's a legend or maybe he's a historical figure but he's been so clouded in tradition and exaggeration that we cannot know him, we cannot know who he was for real, then you are left with absolutely no way to repay the debt you still owe to God for your sin and rebellion. If you believe that he's, he's crazy, he doesn't know what he's talking about, he's out of his mind, then you will consider anything that he says to be under a cloud of suspicion. Now if you believe him to be the chosen one of God, the hope of Israel, the source of life for the world, then you can't help but expect him to change your life and to impact what you do every day. In other words, you'll be what Barna calls a resilient disciple. Jesus accepts Peter's answer. You are the chosen one of God. He demonstrates his assent to that title of Christ, the chosen one of God. Now, with that in view, consider what this means for his future. Let's move on to the second key question. What direction is he heading? Verses 21 and 22. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So what direction is he heading? Jesus commands them to keep quiet about his identity because he has a destiny to fulfill. Certain things must happen to him, according to verse 21. This shows us where he is going from here, what direction he's heading in. Verse 22, he must suffer He must be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes. He must be killed, and he must be raised on the third day. This is the mission of God's chosen one, God's Messiah. He must go down and then go up. He must become lower and lower and lower, suffer, be rejected, be killed, and then he will shoot for the stars when he is raised on the third day. Jesus describes his own mission and calling like a giant parabola. Remember that that funky shape you learned about in algebra class? Or if you haven't had algebra yet, it's coming. There's this shape. It looks like this. It's called a parabola. Get excited. It's the same pattern that God kept taking his people through time and again over the course of the Old Testament. Abraham, for example, must suffer childlessness before he can become the father of many nations. 
Jacob must suffer exile from his homeland before he can return with a magnificent household and wealth. Joseph must suffer slavery and then prison before he can rise to power at the right hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The Hebrews must suffer generations of oppression and slavery before they find rescue and establishment as a sovereign nation. And the pattern continues through the Old Testament over and over and over again. Oppression and then freedom. Bad leaders and then good leaders. Foolishness, then wisdom. Idolatry, then true worship. Exile, then restoration. Jesus fits himself right into this pattern, this death and resurrection theme of Scripture. He must embody the pattern in his own person. This is what it means for him to be the Son of Man. The one whom God has appointed as the heir of all things. The one who will assume kingship at Yahweh's right hand. This message, this parabola, it was quite a stumbling block in the ancient world, but today it has almost become cliche. Let me explain. It was a stumbling block in the ancient world. The Jews at the time stumbled over this. No, Jesus, it cannot be that you would suffer. You must triumph. You must crush Rome. You must make Israel as glorious as she was always meant to be. The Apostle Paul will later call the cross on which Jesus died a stumbling block to Jews. They could not understand how this could be. But today, this this shape has, has almost become cliche. We can't have a decent story without a significant plot component shaped like a parabola. The hero must come to the end of his or her rope before catching a second wind and rising up to overcome their challenge. Gandalf must fall off the bridge so he can come back more powerful and dressed in white. The empire must strike back before the Jedi can return. Iron Man must sacrifice himself through one final snap in order for the enemy to be defeated and life to come to the world. This is how our stories are shaped. But please understand, it's not the case that Jesus followed this pattern because it made for a good story. No, it makes for a good story because it follows the pattern of Jesus. And that leads Luke to present what exactly it means to follow this kind of Messiah. If this is Jesus' pattern, what does it mean to be a disciple of his? What does it mean to follow him on his path? And that's what the rest of our text speaks about. This third critical question. Once we know what direction he is heading, then we can ask, how can I follow? Let me read verses 23 through 27. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. 
For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So the third thing that Luke deals with in this text is this third question. How can I follow? Verse 23 begins with, If anyone would come after me. I've described my path down, 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 and then up. And if you're going to follow me, here's what it's going to look like. Jesus addresses the case where someone actually has the guts to come after him on his path. Someone sees where Jesus is heading. They see the shape of his mission. And they refuse to shrink back, but want to press ahead with him. Now it's critical, as we think about this third question, we must keep in mind both of the first two questions. Because one without the other will get you into trouble. If all you think about is what direction he's heading, you might never want to follow. Why would I sign up for that? For that suffering and death. What good is it to follow behind someone who's just going forward to suffer and die? Even if there's hope at the end of it, why would I go through that? So that's if all you think about is the second question. If all you ever think about is the first question, who is Jesus, you may end up following him down the wrong path. You might believe that he is the chosen one of God, but if you don't realize that that involves death and resurrection, you'll set your hopes in all the wrong places, and you'll go looking for him down the wrong roads. So how can I follow this Messiah, this chosen one, on his path where he's heading? Jesus issues a clear command in verse 23, and then he follows it up with two clarifications And two incentives. Let me break this down for you. First, the command. In verse 23. He said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So if you want to come after Jesus, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow him. Jesus is very clearly connecting your path to his own path. Since the place where he is going involves suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection, so also the path of those who follow must involve suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection. Following Jesus is not about fulfilling yourself or achieving your hopes and dreams. It is about denying yourself. Following Jesus is not about squeezing the juice out of life. It is about taking up your cross daily. Now remember that at the time that Jesus spoke this, the cross was not a piece of jewelry worn about the neck. It was a form of capital punishment and torture. Jesus is saying that those who come after him must be willing to die a million deaths every 
day. This is related to denying yourself, saying no to yourself, putting to death your passions, your desires, your preferences for the sake of only being with Jesus on his path. And friends, following Jesus is not about succeeding in your own life dreams. It is about following Jesus, going where he has gone, trying to keep up with him. And the million daily deaths are all worth it that we might attain to the resurrection along with our master and king, God's chosen one, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. So in a nutshell, the command is simply to die with Jesus. But we should still ask, what does that mean? What does that look like in life? So Luke provides two clarifications, verses 24 and 25, each beginning with the word for, to show that he's explaining this. Let me read it again. For whoever would save his life will lose, his, will lose it, But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? In these verses, Jesus uses two metaphors to clarify his command. The metaphor of rescue or saving in verse 24 and then the metaphor of profit in verse 25. Let me explain these. First in verse 24 with the metaphor of rescue. The best way to lose your life is to try to rescue it, to save it from the demands of daily death. So if you would like to lose everything, just make choices each day to do what is most comfortable for you. To do what will make you feel most secure. Do what makes you the happiest. Do what will serve you. And do whatever will give you the greatest reputation and the best success. Do those things on a daily basis. And you will lose it all in the end. You can't hold on to it. But if you would like to save your life, Jesus says, then you will need to make daily choices to do what is hard, to do that which will cost you reputation or worldly success, to do that which may leave you without a tangible safety net, to do that which will require you to say no to yourself and to your own preferences in favor of Jesus' preferences. All of this is involved in this metaphor of rescue in verse 24. And then Jesus uses the metaphor of profit in verse 25. Let's just do a little economic experiment. This is what Jesus wants. Let's take a set of balance scales. You know, those things they used to use before cash registers were invented. Some of you old enough to remember that? Probably not. You know, when they tried to balance a volume of goods on one side with the weight of measurement on the other, this is how the merchants did it. So let's, let's put the whole world on one side of the balance scale. Let's put all the success, all the promotions 
that you can get. All the financial security, all the reputation, all the fame and power. And then on top, we'll throw in a book deal. Okay? And then people will love you for it. And then on the other side of the balance scale, let's put your immortal soul. Would it truly be worth it to you to get everything on the first side and lose what's on the second side? Because Jesus says you can't have both. You would certainly have quite a bit of profit you would, you, would, you would gain quite a bit in that first instance. But the regret, the pain, the self-hatred of losing your immortal soul would be incredible when you lose it in the end. This is challenging. This is hard. Because what it requires of us to do every day is to think past today. Please hear me on this. Because some of us really struggle with getting out of the today and thinking past today. We need to find motivation for today from something to come that we can't yet see. Let me illustrate what this looks like for me my current, with my current battle with managing my weight. This has been a real challenge for me. It's been a real struggle this last year. Whenever I'm staring at a chocolate chip cookie or a piece of cake, or an extra helping of casserole, or a bag of chips, usually the only thing I can think about in that moment is how delicious the food will be. But the next morning, when I step on the scale to weigh myself, I always regret it. Every time. There's not been a single time I haven't regretted the indulgence. My best moments are the times when in the moment I can see past that which I see, smell, and desire today. And I can consider how much more profit there is for me tomorrow by making a different choice today. That's the, the, the idea Jesus has. In these daily choices, you're not, your eyes aren't on today. They're on the next day. They're on the last day. And the profit that you, ha- you will gain by gaining the life, eternal life for your soul. So Jesus has issued his command and he's offered two, the command to die with him. And he's offered two clarifications. The clarification of, of rescuing and gaining the best profit. How does all this apply? How does all this apply? Please be aware of the world's false gospel. The the, the message that the world preaches to you, be aware of it so you can resist its influence. Now what I'm about to say applies to all of us, but I would like to especially ask the youth and the young adults and the young people in our church to consider this very closely. To be aware of what the world is preaching to you so you can resist its influence. Because as I mentioned in my introduction, the statistics predict that perhaps 10% of you will still be following Jesus 10 years from now. Now, it doesn't have to be that way. We want so much more for you. 
We don't want 10% of our church to still be following Jesus in 10 years. Please understand that you are breathing the air every day of a false message and you're living in an evil age. As my namesake Peter says earlier in this passage, Jesus is the chosen one of God. He came to explain to us how God made the world to work and how things work best in his kingdom. But friends, the world doesn't like what Jesus said about how things should work. The world constantly wars against him and tries to seduce us, to trap us into a false reality. Can you recognize fake news when it has to do with your soul? Let me get specific. Jesus says, deny yourself. We need to be aware that the world around us every day is saying, you've got to be true to yourself. That's a lie. Jesus says, take up your cross daily. And every day the world tells us, you have to do every day what will make you happy. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, here's what must happen. And we live in a world that tells us every day that nobody has the right to tell anyone else what is right or wrong for him or her. And that's a lie. Jesus says, Whoever would save his life will lose it. But the world tells us every day, you should be free to live any way you want, as long as you're not harming anybody else. And these are lies. Friends, you are surrounded by these lies from the world all the time. They come at us on the television, in our web browsers, over streaming services, even on billboards and on t-shirts. These are all around us. Can you see it? Can you recognize the world's false message so that you can call it out and reject it when you see it? Because if you can't see it, you're in trouble. You're going to fall for it. For example, conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. Well, now they know. Let it go. Let it go. Can't Hold it back anymore. Let it go. Let it go. Turn away and slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. Can you hear the world's false message? Now, I love the movie Frozen. And it's a wild turn of events that... This song is the most popular and singable song from the film because the message of this song, Let It Go, is exactly the opposite of the message of the film as a whole. The, the film's trying to communicate that true love is not about what you want for yourself. True love is about laying down your life for others. It's a great film for that reason. It's not perfect, but there's some great things about it. But, but we, all we sing from it is Let It Go. It's an incredible song. And, and go ahead and sing it. But, but don't do it without calling out the lies present in it. The lies about being true to myself. About finding self-fulfillment. Not caring what, what's going to happen. 
Now, why, why are these lies so attractive? They permeate everything around us. Why is Jesus' way of death leading to resurrection a better life direction? Why is it worth it to follow Jesus' path? Jesus ends with two incentives in verses 26 and 27. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Jesus gives two incentives for following him on this path. Incentive number one in verse 26 is to avoid causing Jesus shame. To avoid causing Jesus shame. Friends, be assured that one day Jesus will fully reunite heaven and earth. And when he does, he will bring the glory of his Father and the glory of his holy angels so that God's will will finally be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when he does this, Jesus assures us that there will be many people who claim to have followed him of whom he will be ashamed His shame toward us then is directly proportional to our shame toward him now. Let me repeat. Jesus' shame toward us then is in direct proportion to our shame toward him now. If you are ashamed of him as you go out in this world, ashamed of him or his words... He will be ashamed of you then. When we get to that day, some of you will hear Jesus say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. But there are others of you who will hear him say, sorry, do I know you? I want to hear the first statement from Jesus and not the second. I invite you to join me in spurning any shame you feel from being associated with Jesus now. It will be well worth it in the end. Incentive number one is to avoid causing Jesus shame. And incentive number two in verse 27 is to see the kingdom of God. To see the kingdom of God Be assured that when Jesus reunites heaven and earth, the kingdom of God will no longer be that thing that we cannot see but must take on faith. Instead, it will be the fullest and the final reality. It will be everything we had ever hoped it could be, where pain and suffering are done away with, where relationships are fully restored, where deep intimacy is possible without fear, without embarrassment. It'll be a place where the well of delight and satisfaction never runs dry and it never turns sour. But the sad part is that only some people will see it and others will not. Deny yourself now to truly find yourself then. 
Take up your cross now to rise to new and indestructible life then. Follow Jesus now to have him identify with you then. You can avoid his shame and you can see his kingdom. Would that be worth it to you? How does this apply? Brothers and sisters, if you already follow Jesus, please don't despise the pain of serving him. It won't last much longer. And friends, if you do not yet follow Jesus, please don't be deceived. You cannot save your life, but Jesus can. Trust him today. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for sending Jesus and for showing us the way your world works. Please enable us to avoid the shame of Jesus and grant unto us that we might see the kingdom of God. Father, we pray these things not for our own glory, but for your glory. Help us to find our glory in yours. Help us to find our satisfaction in you. Help us to find our greatest fulfillment and delight in following Jesus on his path, that one day we might too attain with him to the resurrection from the dead. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.